0: Welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Monica Black, and today I am talking to Jeff Bowersox, author of Raising Germans in an Age of Empire, Youth and Colonial Culture, 1871 to 1914. This very interesting book was just published this year by Oxford University Press. Raising Germans in an Age of Empire looks at uh, colonial encounters, we might say, between young Germans and their nation's expanding overseas empire in the period from the founding of the German nation-state in 1871 to the eve of the First World War in 1914. Uh, Jeff Powersox is interested, in essence, in how young Germans were taught through toys in schools and in youth organizations like scouting troops, for example, to envision their empire, literally to imagine distant uh, lands, exotic places, and peoples. His narrative takes shape over the period uh, from the inception of the German Empire when Germans and their leaders were notably ambivalent about the European project of overseas conquest to the era of World War I by which time an aggressive militaristic nationalism had developed not only in Germany but in other places too in Europe uh, in part as a result of the rivalry between various European powers for overseas expansion. This was an age in which For example, the so-called scramble for Africa took place when, over a period of just a couple of decades, Africa went from being largely independent to being nearly totally colonized by various European powers, among them the Germans, of course, but also the British, the French, the Belgians, and other other countries. Uh, This means, in fact, that the the kinds of uh, phenomena that Jeff looks at in this book were really, in some ways, replicated in many other European colonial powers. And so what he's talking about, uh, the influences, the way, the ways in which um, nationalist and, and imperialist pedagogues, uh, pedagogues and uh, uh, the way that purveyors of colonialist kitsch were, were taking part in the, the attempt to influence young people concerning uh, their empire and their place in the world was something that took place in Germany, but it was also something that took place on a comparative scale uh, in in France and in Britain and in other places, this is some, what we see in in Jeff's very interesting book is something that we could we could also see happening simultaneously in other European colonialist powers at the same time. So, Jeff, with that brief inter- introduction, I want to thank you very much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Uh, it's lovely to talk to you. And uh, we're actually just for the for the uh, the sake of uh, our of our listeners' interest, possibly we're we're actually talking on a kind of in a kind of transatlantic way because. I'm in the United States and you are in the UK. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. So I wonder if you could just tell us briefly a little bit about you and maybe, um, you know, maybe a bit about your biography. And then sure. if you could use that sure. to sort of then uh, tell us a little bit also about how you came to this topic.
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm in the UK now, uh, although my accent suggests that I'm not originally from here. Um I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Worcester in the history department there um, in Worcester in the UK, uh, a position that I only just started uh, two months ago, uh, having been uh, a research fellow at King's College before that, King's College London before that, and spending the previous four years before that at the University of Southern Mississippi uh, in Hattiesburg. Um, so that's sort of my, my academic status, I suppose. Um, this topic, this topic was originally my dissertation project uh, at the University of Toronto, where I studied under Moders Ecksteins uh, and uh, Jim Ritalik and Eric Jennings, who are professors there. Um, and it's a topic that I, I guess you could say I came to um, in a sort of, I guess, sort of a crooked line brought me there, I suppose. Um, I, I went to U of T interested in colonialism and in German history. Uh, that was something I knew I wanted. That's what I wanted to study. But actually, when I went there, I thought I was going to do it with, with relation to Eastern Europe as, a, as opposed to overseas things. Mm. Um, but I quickly became interested in the, the growing literature at that time. This would have been um, 2001 is when I started there. Um, the, the, the growing literature on German colonialism overseas connected to Eastern Europe as well. But the Overseas stuff was what was really fascinating me when I started putting together my research project. And I came to this sort of through a couple failed projects first. I I had two or three other ideas that I would start on only to realize that someone else had gotten there first. Um, They were in the process of doing them right then. Uh, And so I had to keep sort of jumping from one sort of possible topic to another before I came to something that just hadn't been addressed at all, which was uh, the experience of children and youth. Uh, which is an area in general that's understudied in German history. Uh, But with regard to colonialism was entirely unstudied. Um, So I was happy to to make a contribution to that. And it allowed me to sort of play with a lot of interesting, quirky sort of sources that I was looking forward to the challenge of trying to locate and then to try to interpret. So sort of uh, institutional sort of sources, your archival stuff, uh, published sources, that sort of thing, but then also material culture items like toys, games, um, and more incohe things like movements themselves which are sometimes very difficult to try to get a, get a handle on um yeah so that's 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 how i sort of came to the topic itself um
0: yeah wonderful yeah wonderful that's very interesting all of all of what you said is interesting i mean one of the things i thought that i appreciated about what you said was that you know and this has happened to lots of us over over uh, the course of our of our research lives that you you have a idea that you love and you think oh boy this is going to be it and then you find out that someone else is working on it or that their approach might be quite similar to yours and so you you move on but in fact that as you point out uh uh the sometimes those what appear at the moment to be failures or or what appear at the moment to be failed projects actually turn out to be something really exciting and interesting
1: yeah creative destruction in a sense
0: that's exactly right that to use the parlance of our times
1: creative destruction Listening should should take hope because many, many, many of us have to go through this process at least once or twice or even three times in my own case. Um, and it doesn't have to be the end of your you, know, you may feel like it at the time when you discover that other book or project out there. But um, once you once you get over that disappointment, um, it can open up new opportunities that you hadn't quite imagined were possible before.
0: That's right. And I, I appreciate you saying that for our for our graduate students out there that who are listening that uh, exactly that, you know, we can always we can always find something something sometimes our our failed experiments will lead us to something quite new i wonder if you could say a little bit more about um i mentioned in my kind of opening comments that there are aspects of what you've what you've studied here in your book that have been studied in other contexts though not in the german context and i wonder so i wanted to see if you could maybe for our listeners who are less familiar with the area of of imperialist history, you know, this sort of late 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon. uh, If you could kind of place your work within the broader field and say a little bit about why empires become, this is something that you address in the introduction to your book, why empires become a matter of such interest in the last, I would say, 10 years really specifically. Uh, About the time that you started in graduate school in 2001, the interest started to really Uh, rev up and it's and it and it and it has only continued to do so since so the question i wanted to ask you was sort of why empire if you could address that for our for our listeners
1: sure i mean it has it has a, a range of different uh origins i suppose but certainly within the last 10 15 you can even push it back in some cases uh 20 years or so at least um there's there's been a a sort of a two a sort of a two a dual shift if you will um, to new topics and new approaches in history. One is what you might call, what many have called sort of the cultural turn, uh, which has opened up new ways, of, which is a, a way of looking at um, sort of mentalities and uh, so, uh, sort of social assumptions about how society should operate. Uh, reading between the lines of history, you could say, uh, what people say and do, and trying to understand the sort of logic that underlies them and the ways that they that people can test um, in those sorts of between the lines moments and sort of Anthropologically informed sort of way, um, so the cultural turn has opened up new ways of new sorts of sources to look at, and new ways of addressing old questions like uh, why did colonialism happen? How did how did it affect Europeans, or how did Europeans affect the colonial spaces that they were uh, ostensibly governing over? Um, that's been one important um, one important influence on directing attention towards new types of sources that had been marginalized before in particular sorts of trivial sources or what had been considered trivial sources like popular culture items or even things that weren't considered high literature, high culture. Um, And connecting to that has been a turn or has been a growing influence of post-colonial and colonial studies, uh, studies that have been looking at sort of, you could say they've been turning colonial history on its head. That is to say, instead of looking at the world as Europeans saw it, uh, thinking about the way that the world might have looked differently if you weren't looking at it through a, what you might call a Eurocentric lens. Uh, so looking back at Europeans um, and understanding the way that the, that the way that the Europeans looked at the rest of the world was part of how, of, of a process, not just of thinking about the world, or even just sort of trying to justify colonial rule in a very cynical sort of way, but also a process of trying to construct themselves. That is Europeans were looking out at the wider world in order to define themselves for themselves, and in a flattering way, perhaps, most often so. Um, and this is something that helps Europeans understand themselves and also has consequences for the wider world that they're interacting with, especially when there's such dis- uh, disparities in power relations uh, around the globe in precisely this time in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and that's something that's, that really began to shape uh, historiography, especially in Britain, um, for, you know, in, in the last 20 years or so. Uh, it, it kicked off in Germany in the late 90s or so, really, it started to kick off in force, starting off with um, uh, literary scholars and cultural studies scholars, uh, first and foremost, but it's gradually shifted into um, more mainstream areas, or th- those, those avenues have, been, have become more mainstream, become uh, a more central player within the broader narratives of German history, um, informed by what's going on. Uh, in the historiography of, say, Britain, uh, to a lesser degree, France, um, the U.S. as well, uh, these sorts of cultural studies, post-colonial approaches, attention to how racial hierarchies and such are constructed. Um, these things have been imported, in a sense, into the German experience, but also, as, as I assume we'll talk about later on, when, when German scholars look at these sorts of approaches and apply them in the German case— it also helps us understand things operating a little differently and gives different perspectives on those same processes. So these are very much the process of encountering the wider world and trying to imagine your place within it, both to understand yourself and to to operate when your 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 various agents go out in the world. Um, this is something that Germans are doing. In concert with other Europeans and Americans around the world, but it's also something that Germans are doing in their own context as well. So it's it's both it's both transnational and local. And I guess is the best transnational studies tend to be. Yes, uh,
0: yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just I I wanted to actually pick up on something that you just said because I think and 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 I and where I think you were uh you you were thinking about going there because I I think this will be interesting too. If you could maybe talk a little bit about why. Let's say why um, historians of Germany have been a bit slower to recognize the importance of empire within German historiography and within German social history. The, the, the French and British literatures are, are deeper and older, as you noted, and maybe you can explain to, the, to our listeners a bit about why the German case is different.
1: Yeah. Well, there's. I think you could break it down into two really simple uh, reasons that are not really simple but you can break them down very simply mm-hmm. um, one is the relatively short span of Germany's colonial rule overseas and the second is the holocaust and the Nazis um, the, in the first case Germany only was only a, a state um, a, as a Germany from 1871 as you mentioned um, it only Germany only took part in colonial expansion in any meaningful way there were predecessors but in any meaningful way only beginning in the mid 1880s with the scramble for Africa. Um, and Germany had a large colonial empire by comparison with other powers. Um, it was, uh, third only behind, uh, France in terms of overseas possessions, uh, territories in Africa, as you mentioned, uh, what are today, Tanganyika, uh, that the, the, not Zanzibar, but the, the land part of Tanzania, uh, Togo and Cameroon, what's today Namibia was known as Southwest Africa, uh, back in the day. um, and then also possessions, a host of them, in the Pacific. Uh, the, uh, mo- many of the islands that, um, that the, the U.S. now governs, including parts of Samoa, the Caroline Islands, the Marshall Islands, and a host of others, as well as parts of Papua New Guinea, were all German possessions, German colonies. Um, and then also, of course, uh, the, the Chinese port city of uh, Qingdao. And if any of your listeners are familiar with Qingdao beer, then they'll be familiar with a German product that was produced under the German colonial empire, and then uh, taken over by later colonial powers, the Japanese, and then by the Chinese government uh, after the Second World War. But anyway, that's a long way of saying Germany had many colonies, but they were all taken away after the First World War. Uh, In fact, they were lost within the earliest days of the First World War. Um, And so, many have used this sort of brevity to suggest that the colonies themselves didn't matter very much to Germans. And there's a lot of reasons you can make that argument. Perhaps we can talk about that more in a second. Um, So that's one reason why. Um, The second reason is that uh, the Germans have a very specific experience with the Second World War uh, around National Socialism and the Holocaust that justifiably, I should note, uh, takes up a lot of the energy of German history. The the Holocaust and the Nazis are the focal point of modern German historiography uh, for for obvious reasons. Um, And what that means is that when trying to talk about trying to talk about the the things that matter in German history, um, usually, if we can connect them to the Nazis and the Holocaust in some way, they, they become of greater importance. Mm-hmm. And because the Nazis, their own overseas uh, plans were relatively limited, certainly compared to their continental ambitions, um, that it, it, it has been seen by many, and still is seen by many as of secondary importance, uh, secondary importance at the very least or at the very most, and uh, perhaps even of tertiary or more uh, lower importance there. Um, and if you compare that with, for example, the experience of Britain and France with uh, decolonization, the empire striking back, so to speak, um, and post-colonial migration, those, those processes have created um, large and visible populations whose experiences don't gel so much with the longer resident populations, Britain and France, and whose experiences derive in many ways directly from the imperial experience. Uh, and that's a that's a challenge for historians to draw back those histories into the imperial era and the imperial context in Britain and France and to use them to explain things that are going on today, to draw along continuities. And because Germany's post-colonial migration, what you might call that, uh, comes from um, southern Europe comes from Turkey, comes from not Germany's colonies as a whole. Um, even, you know, even more recent uh, migrants from Africa are not largely coming from Germany's colonies. They're coming from other places that Germany didn't have a, as direct a connection with. Because of that, there's been a disconnect between populations of minorities in Germany and colonial rule that was broken off a century ago. I think if you put those two things together, it helps explain why there's been so much less attention among historians Certainly, um, as well as among the public as well. There's what many have called a sort of uh, colonial amnesia that is recently is becoming uh, is, is being undone through some very good uh, work by historians and by popular historians and journalists to try to make Germans more aware of what what their experience in the age of European empire uh, was about and how it might have, in fact, long term continuities into the Nazi era. And indeed, into the post war and Berlin Republic eras
0: yes, yes. that's very interesting, and I, I really appreciate your giving our our listeners um, that that uh, that that background and, and a sort of a, a sense of historiographical placing for your work. Uh, I think that's really useful and I wonder now if you can sort of follow up on that by explaining what what was it that you found so important about looking at children and the experience of youth. In the context of, of of the creation of a colonial imaginary, and I and I'll I'll I'll, I'll also say something about the fact that you mention in the early on in the book I can't, can't quite remember exactly where, but I know that you mention uh, the important fact that Germany was demographically a very very young country uh, in the period of its colonial expansion. So if you could maybe talk about that that demographic reality and how that shaped. Uh, how, how that shaped the, the sense that youth were sort of very important, um, uh, that it was very important to reach youth in particular ways uh, and to teach them about the world through the kinds of, of media that, that that you look at in the book. And, of course, we'll talk about those media in more detail in a few minutes.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, Germany was experiencing demographically a baby boom before the First World War. Uh, the, the, population, the percentage of the population that was youth in Germany Uh, was greater at that point than at any time since. And so Germany itself was very young. Um, Many of the leading figures of Germany were also relatively young. If you think about, um, for example, Kaiser Wilhelm II, who came to power in 1888, he styled himself as very young. And he wasn't so young by 1914, but certainly for much of his reign, he styled himself as not a sort of greybeard, not even a a sort of middle-aged respectable guy, but as a young, sort of fiery, sort of um, active force pushing Germany forward into the future. Um, And he cultivated this image of youth, um, an image which fit not just with a Germany that's demographically young, but a Germany that's also politically young, because, of course, the German state was only founded in 1871. And so that sort of of sense of Germany as an unfinished project, or as, as a project just begun, perhaps, um, played into the same sense that you now have to sort of build the nation. And not everyone was clear on exactly what that would mean, what, what sort of Germany was going to be built, and what sort of Germany, uh, sort of thinking outside of German borders, how that Germany is going to relate to the wider world. And with the extraordinary expansion of the German economy at the same time, the extraordinary expansion of the German population at the same time, um, there's a sense of vitality That pervades a lot of German society and certainly a lot of cultural commentary at the time. If you're thinking of the more uh, optimistic cultural commentators, there's, there's a lot of hope that this young, vibrant, active Germany with a large population of young people led by many young people. Could use that energy to perhaps challenge the older, more established powers. And if if not everyone was thinking of this in terms of outright conflict, that we often think about, we often we often think of Anglo-German rivalry, for example, as a sort of fight to the death sort of thing. Um, but a lot of people were thinking of it in more benign ways as a sort of reviving European civilization that Germany had an important contribution to make to that, and that gaining the place in the sun for many was. Germany taking on its rightful place, but also its necessary place to make sure that the older established powers um, didn't weren't static, so to speak. That Germany can really m- help modernize something that, by the way, commentators in Britain and France uh, often commented on um, the, the, the modernity of German of the German economy, of German science, German culture, even in the colonial context as well. Um, so this is so this is something that there's there's this. Atmosphere of of youth and activity in Germany anyway. And if you combine that with the sense that Germany has to sort of prepare itself for the modern age in the face of tremendous challenges, challenges which are brought about by this precisely the same things that were making them so active, this modern economy, the industrial economy in particular. Um, It was creating enormous wealth. It was creating enormous power, military, industrial, economic, um, trade terms and such. But it was also causing lots of problems. Uh, It was creating an urban proletariat. It was creating massive cities with um, inner city troubles, uh, poverty. Uh, People crammed into unhealthy places. Those are concerned about hygiene. Um, People were worried about education. The way that an industrial sort of education was not focused on inspiring imaginations and learning, but more on rote uh, memorization, what they called the memory cram. Uh, just forcing students to spit back mechanically, or even like uh, like uh, well drilled soldiers, uh, just facts and figures that they couldn't actually put into practice. These, of course, are ideas that probably don't seem too out of, uh, out of place today. In, this, in some senses, um, and so there's there's a lot of concern that as Germany is being vibrant and expanding, that the raw material of Germany, the Germans themselves wouldn't be up to the task that the very source of their prosperity, particularly the Industrial Revolution, and everything that comes along with it, was also undermining that future prosperity by creating a mass of worn-out, uh, uninventive, uncreative, um, even misled uh, Germans. And, of course, among that, if you're thinking about what to how you're going to raise the nation and make it powerful, not just now but in the future... Then you have to start paying attention to young people who were at this point, uh, many of them are working, but also they're beginning to be paid more attention to as the, the, the tools for building that future German nation that can compete on the global stage in this industrial age.
0: Yes. Yes. That's, it's, that's all very interesting what you were saying. I, I always find this era of German history and of European history generally to be one of the most um, fascinating for precisely the reasons that you pointed out. I mean, this tremendous, uh, tremendous um, economic expansion and the effects that that was having on cities and then the, the effects that that those effects on cities, urbanization, for example, were having on the way that people thought about the world and all kinds of new ideas emerging, some of them quite scary, <laughs> some of yeah. them very interesting, of course. Yeah. Um, but in any case, I, I that... Uh, that all of that resonated with me. Um, and I appreciate you giving us, uh, giving us some insights there about the connection I, between. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: I should add one point as well. That yes, that's please. Really yeah. To note um, while this is all going on, um, the, the very notion of youth and childhood was being invented by cultural critics and sociologists of uh, the time. So, this, I mean, this is an important context as well that the idea that there is a stage of human development that starts from the youngest of ages and goes up till the time when people go out of the house, and that this has to be somehow protected, um, that this stage has very specific um, intellectual processes that are different from those of adults, and those people, those little people, uh, up to adolescence, have the special needs that are different and have to be cultivated in a way to make them effective adults. This, This idea was being invented around this time and this is part of the context well, for understanding this, that um, one of the concerns about the industrial age was that it was going to drill out this more or less newly discovered or rediscovered idea uh, of childhood uh, and youthful imagination and creativity and spontaneity and all these things that um, we tend to associate with young people today. Uh, These are things that a whole range of academics and others were first becoming... we're first starting to think about as a, as a framework for understanding how to deal with these people, um, young people. And so this also plays into it that there's a, there's a sort of um, reshaping our worldview that of course still goes on until the present day.
0: Yes. And of course, this is also the moment when, as you suggest, um, a lot of the, what we would now think of as the social sciences are forming and, and, uh, and are finding um, new places to look at um, the human condition and trying to understand the way that the changes that you talked about—industrialization, massive economic expansion, uh, overseas colonization—were influencing um, human communities and trying to trying to get all, get at all of that stuff. And then, of course, the very important role that the, as you as you point out again, the reinvention of childhood. In this moment had and on that particular note on the note of the reinvention of childhood, I thought I think one of my favorite chapters in your book was the book was the, the chapter excuse me. I think it's chapter one actually on toys. And so now yeah. maybe I, th- I thought we could segue into talking a bit about the, the various media and ma- and forms of material culture that you look at in your in your in your book. Um, and maybe if you could speak with us a little bit about what that what that chapter on toys is about how you used Toys as a kind of um, as a window onto uh, ad- onto aspects of the of what you refer to in various points, and other people have referred to also as the colonial imaginary.
1: Um, well, essentially, the, the chapter surveys th- the way that uh, producers of various sorts try to appeal to what they thought young people wanted to wanted to play with. This is an era of mass consumer culture among other, another, uh, another context, necessary context we have to include in the conversation. Um, and this is an era when young people as the targets of, uh, of, uh, producers is also when children first became a target for producers, um, across the scales of income from the lowest classes up to the, up to the highest classes. And Along with this, there was an interest in trying to appeal to what they thought young people wanted, and among those things were an interest in uh, the exotic, an interest in worlds beyond their own experiences, uh, an interest in places where they could sort of experience a sense of autonomy, a sense of adventure, a sense of of being something more than they were, of developing themselves as individuals um, through their imaginations. And producers played to this idea by producing, uh, by sort of reproducing uh, the, the wider world and delivering it to kids through a whole host of means, through all kinds of sorts of toys, uh, from sort of elaborate board games to um, mechanical tin toys, very complicated, many of them, uh, machinery, uh, the sort of wind up toy that, that, that does a dance for you or wanders around and uh, does something funny for you. Um, also through tin soldiers, through which you could reproduce many of the colonial um, events happening uh, around you. In fact, they were called newspapers in tin because the it was presumed that uh, because they could be reproduced so quickly, uh, they were on shelves within, within weeks of an event happening, like the uh, a, a military uh, campaign happening, a war happening, or a major event of an explorer doing something or other. They can get on the store shelves very, very quickly. And so it was presumed that kids were playing with them while their kid, while their parents were reading about them in the papers. And they could even actually have a conversation about world events through these forms. Um, also, uh, sort of plush toys as well, uh, the sort of things that, that kids would go to sleep with at night um, would be re- could be reproduced in some way. Uh, and then various sorts of figurines, whether in early plastics um, or uh, paper cutouts as well. But these are all things that... Producers began trying to sell on a massive scale to kids, beginning really the sort of 1860s, but in the 1870s. Um, in a sort of process of, I mean, some of it's sort of a process of experimentation, right? What, what will sell? Um, but it was presumed that as everyone else in society seemed to be interested, interested in the sort of European expansion, in strange and wonderful creatures who, who look strange uh, and wonderful that children would be too, especially because parents are buying the objects for them by and large. And so there develops this huge market um, in toys in general, but also a submarket within that for colonial characters and settings. And as I mentioned, these cover mostly the areas that where stuff is happening around the world. Um, you know, India, a lot of, a lot of uh, Africans represented the American wild West anywhere where Europeans Uh, White people, I should say, because it's not just Europeans, um, where white people are encountering non-white people, anywhere where there are strange and curious environments um, that don't look quite like what kids in Germany might might recognize as familiar. Uh, These are ripe for exploitation by producers um, who put them together in all sorts of curious ways, because, of course, the point for producers wasn't just to reproduce the world as it actually was, although they often advertise their products as being authentic. Um, The point was to catch people's eye. It was to try to get attention in a shop window and to, to to cause a purchaser to buy their item over someone else's item. This is a very competitive market. And so they would pick up not just sensational things, but sensational things that were things presented sensationally, but things presented sensationally to suit the most current of events and more than that, they would try to produce things that were produced sensationally to match current events and offered in some curious or unique way, perhaps, um, mixing and matching things in, in a way that could um, cause a parent to buy that item over the one next to it that reproduces more or less what it does in, in all its details. And so kids end up getting uh, colonial soldiers, for example. They could buy your colonial soldiers with your various sorts of native savages. Um, you can sometimes they're mixed and matched. Uh, sometimes the colonial environments are mixed and matched. And so one of my favorite examples of this is a, uh, a, tin, a tin toy set that has um, what appears to be uh, it's, it's, it's an elephant with a white hunter on it uh, with uh, Indian uh, assistance of a sort. And uh, it includes an African tiger that has also found a zebra to eat. And so somehow we've got uh, Indian characters with an African zebra thrown together in the same set, and it's all supposed to make sense. Mm. And it's not accurate, but it makes sense because these are all supposed to be sort of members of that same other world out there where you can mix and match things without anyone throwing up too much of a fuss, because the point isn't necessarily accuracy if you're a producer or commercial producer if you're a kid. The point is to allow for imaginative play. Um, and that's what, on the commercial end, what producers were trying to accomplish and get across to the kids, is
0: to to, to give that space for fantasy. That's right. Yeah. To yeah.
1: so, to feed to feed that sort of youthful fantasy, which is becoming something that that commentators are increasingly commenting on, or, or increasingly trying to get people to talk about. Um, and this, of course, produces. I try to make two points about this. Two two other points about this, and that. And that is that the, on the one hand, this provokes, uh, among a lot of critical commentators, a lot of criticism that, they're, that children are being exploited, they're being uh, manipulated by these uh, cynical commercial producers, and they're not being taught things effectively, that producers are just sort of throwing junk at them um, and not giving them a proper understanding of the wider world. And thus, when these kids grow up, they're going to have a, a totally misshapen understanding of how the world operates. They're going to think it's all about... Sensational, um, crazy folk and crazy animals and crazy landscapes, um, without knowing that one particular character, say, uh, say an, an, an Indian in, in this example, is different from an African, is different from a Native American, is different, and that all those different contexts are actually quite different and require different strategies if you're going to interact with them in any meaningful way as an adult. And so, uh, critical commentators and educational uh, educational reformers start trying to themselves enter into the commercial market to intervene in, in mass commerce in order to produce more responsible, more authoritative ways uh, or, or accurate ways to try to represent the colonial world, but without losing that, that fun, without losing the imaginative potential, which they saw as essential to, to kids learning in the modern age. And so you have this really interesting sort of dynamic where you have uh, lots and lots of producers who are producing things primarily to catch people's eye and, and and to sell them at the highest price they can. They can justify it. But then you have all these critical commentators who are, who are bearing down on them saying, you can't exploit the children. You can't mislead the children, which then causes them to adjust their commercial tactics, try to make them more educationally responsible. And in fact, if you could do that, you could even get them into the schools. And so really, really savvy producers could... Use their product could, could shape their products in such a way to not give up that sort of sensational appeal and get make them just educational enough to get them into classrooms and presumably to make more money in the process. Um, and at the same time, but then you've got of course the kids who themselves are trying to find something fun to play with. And for, for in many of the studies that that explore how these toys uh, actually operated, especially an older generation of studies, I should note, um, it's it, it was sort of assumed that. These sorts of products just imposed on kids a worldview, that they imposed on them whatever the commercial producers wanted them to see, whatever the educational reformers wanted them to see, and that, this, that, that that kids kids had no agency in this. But if you look at uh, their memoirs, if you look at their recollections on their childhood peoples as they grew up, looking back on their childhood from this era, if you look at uh, even contemporary studies at the time, it becomes apparent that kids are kids were actually quite savvy about trying to figure out what to do with these toys. They often ignored the intended messages that were in, embedded in them. Um, some of these toys had, came in with really tendentious lessons about uh, patriotic lessons and uh, sort of teaching you how to play with them in order to make you into a good, uh, educated sort of German uh, and to sort of discipline you in that way. Um, and so kids, kids were often just take the toys, throw the rule book out, and then play with them in their own way. They'd mix and match the different toys together. So toy products that were themselves often mixed and matched, kids often actually mixed and matched, even more so. You know, they'd take a board game that was actually quite boring and throw out the, the board and just keep all the little tin pieces. And they'd take them over and they'd uh, make their own world and have their own, little bo- their own battles and their own negotiations. Uh, they'd make their, their cowboys and Indians run over the couch, essentially, um, and try to sort of get what they wanted out of the toys and what they seemed to want was this space for adventure and, and developing autonomy. And what I try to draw the what conclusion I try to draw from this is that over the course of this period, over the course of the imperial era, as people try to get kids to buy products and to or get families to buy products for kids and get kids trained to be good germans who can who have a body of knowledge that's useful later on who know how to operate in the wider world. They try to sort of send messages down the line to kids. And those messages are often framed in terms of a colonial order, that there's a civilized world, there's an uncivilized world. The farmer has a responsibility to uh, help out or uh, otherwise change the latter. And kids often got rid of those messages. They often didn't listen to what they were being told, per se. And yet... As they tried to appropriate these items for their own uses, for their imaginative play, they often ended up reinforcing that exact same binary. And and so, by, because if what they wanted was an adventurous landscape, something different from what they were used to, something different from the streets of their city or town, something different from the schoolroom or their their job, if they're if they're teenagers, what they often would do was imagine the colonial world as the exact opposite, as a disorderly space, as an underdeveloped. Place As a place inhabited by strange and wonderful people um, who could facilitate adventures, uh, their own sort of heroic adventures, their own efforts to shape the landscape, to grapple with a landscape that needed grappling with, like their heroic adventures. Uh, Explorers had done so before them. And so even though kids are often rejecting the basic lessons that are being tried, that, that adults are trying to sort of push down to them. They're often reinforcing that broader world, that broader colonial mindset that sees the wider world as a place for intervention, as a place that is in some sense in need of intervention, um, which by 1940, I think this isn't necessarily the case in 1880 or 1870, but by 1914, this is this is clearly developed in the sense that very few are challenging this idea and um, which I think has consequences for how we understand what Germans are thinking about at the time, up to 1914. But it also gives us something to talk about in terms of continuities. Once Germany's lost its colonial empire, then they haven't lost this colonial mindset, and it carries on in a way that is different from other colonial powers because they still have their empires, but in many ways maintains the same sort of structures uh, up through the Nazi era, and I would argue even into the post-war era, um, with continuities into the present day.
0: Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, maybe at some point you and I can speak further about your your thoughts about the the post nineteen mm. forty five era because I would I would be interested to know your thoughts about that. Um, but but for for now, I wonder if um, on this theme of I was very fascinated by what we, what you were saying about um, a, a sort of sense of adventure and the way that a, an imaginative play, the way that the way that kids appropriated toys and used them for their own for their own imaginative to create their own imaginative landscapes of adventure and. And what have you, uh, and the intersection between that and commerce and pedagogy, and I wondered if on that that note of sort of the intersection between kids' desire for adventure and maybe adults' desire to instruct uh, as we're wont to do, if you could talk a little bit about the chapter on on scouting um, mm-hmm. because I also found that very interesting
1: yeah well this is I, I was very pleased that I was able to uh, to do this chapter because it was when I had the idea for it, I didn't, I didn't imagine there was enough material available because the, the Scots themselves were only founded in Britain in, uh, 19, oh, was it seven, eight, nine or so. Um, in 1909, it's, it's transported over to Germany in a sense. Um, so it's only f- five years of history, really that I'm, that I'm writing in that chapter. Um, and yet once I was able to find the material, thanks to, I should note a, a very generous collector named Stefan Schroelkamp in Berlin. Um, without him, that chapter would not have been possible. Uh, it becomes clear that we have a, a a movement organized around the idea of colonial spaces as spaces for personal development, and that the entire Boy Scout movement in Britain under Baden Powell is developed along these lines. This, is, this is purpose uh, is to develop a, 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 a core of youth who, being borne down by the the weight of industrial society um, to sort of lift them back up so that they can be effective uh, imperial agents in the future and uh, sort of serve the British empire as Baden-Powell had been, in, uh, had, had experienced in, South, in the South African war. Um, and this idea appealed to, uh, to German veterans, two German veterans in particular, this German Southwest African war, which took place only a couple of years after the Boer war concluded. And, um, named um, Alexander Leon and Maximilian Bayer, they had the same sort of fears. They had experienced raw recruits arriving in Southwest Africa who they felt had no idea how to survive, that they, they were essentially urbanites or physically incapable, um, not creative enough to figure out how to enter a new landscape and make use of the resources that were available to them. And even if they had been physically capable of it, a lot of them they felt didn't have the curiosity and the creativity to figure it out. And so they found in Baden-Powell's project um, a tool for accomplishing this purpose. And they worked very, very diligently to try to build up a movement um, because the Boy Scouts were were very popular in Britain from the start. And they started trying to sort of adapt it for the German audience, but they didn't end up changing very much of it. Uh, they they substantially plagiarized, with Baden-Powell's permission, um, the programs of it. And it proved to be quite successful among A lot of Germans, uh, German youth, boys and girls, mostly boys, boys and girls, um, who it seems were fired by that exact same notion that the colonial space is somewhere where you can go and have adventures and where you can develop yourself as an autonomous individual growing into adulthood. And they were pretty successful at it at inspiring kids in this way and using that as a pedagogical tool, as, as you mentioned rightly. And yet, they were stymied in a way that Baden-Powell didn't have to worry about, by commentators and very powerful politicians in Germany, who looked with great suspicion upon the they were called the Pathfinders on the Pathfinder project. Um, they saw it as a as an anglophile as as an as an English import as a as an expression of anglophilia, and if you were a conservative nationalist. Um, sort of an aggressively chauvinistic nationalist, then England is your bet noir, and you don't really want to import anything from from liberal England. Um, And they attached to this project all kinds of ideas about how it would mislead mislead Germany's youth. It taught them um, to take their eye off of the prize, so to speak, that is developing German military virtues, as opposed to running around playing with the savages. Um, And so they actually orchestrated a, a, a campaign to try to get the Pathfinders and their leader, Alexander Leon, who not coincidentally was also Jewish, um, to basically get him run out of the organization, to have the organization itself subsumed within a broader German militaristic youth movement that was also developing at the same time. And this conflict I, find, I found myself most interesting, and I spent a, a good bit of time outlining how it actually worked out, because it took place over a few years. And essentially, the, the founders of the Pathfinders, Leon and Bayer in particular, kept trying to essentially remove themselves from their English model. And they did this in various sort of cynical ways um, uh, and also sort of superficial ways. They changed the illustrations in the Pathfinder book, for example, to make it not be so many English ones. They changed some of the captions. So it wasn't so clear they were from the, the, the British original. Uh, they removed some stories. From it as well, they changed the narrative about where the Pathfinders actually came from, uh, acknowledging that Baden Powell had created the movement in Britain, but that of course Baden Powell had been inspired by German forebears before that, um, and all in, the, in this effort to sort of make the Pathfinders appear, at least superficially, more like a movement rooted in the German nation as opposed to a movement that, for the founders, was very much a cosmopolitan movement. I mean, for them, they they were Anglophiles, but they were thinking about a broader cosmopolitan colonizing community. One that Brits and Germans and French and Americans and basically anyone who had civilizing capacity, mostly white, could join together, go into the colonial space, this undeveloped, unruly space, and there develop the capacity needed to shape the modern world. You couldn't do this back at home in the Metropole. You had to be out in the colonial space grappling with nature, grappling with the indigenous inhabitants in order to be successful in the modern world. Instead of that vision, the pathfinders are forced to increasingly compromise their vision to make it more narrowly German, exclusively German. And so they have to, and they sort of in the process, undermine that pedagogy. They undermine the value of that adventurous landscape. And so in all of their official materials, they are repeatedly trying to, they're repeatedly forced to take this idea of a universal colonial world out there where they can all develop and talk instead about inherent German virtues, that it's not the colonial space that changes you, it's your Germanness that you take to the colonial space that matters. And in many ways, this makes the German pathfinders very different from the, the British model that they had built out of. And it also makes them, I think, much less successful on the whole. Um, now, while a lot of kids would have been using older materials, on the whole, the pathfinders remained far less popular in Germany than they were in Britain. Uh, They were still a large part of the German youth movement and an important part, but they were by no means the wildly successful mass movement that scouting in Britain remained. Um, And in large part, that's because of the, the opposition that forced them to compromise, I think, on these on these basic appeals that had been that had grown out of commercial culture, that had grown out of reform pedagogy, but had also appealed very much to young people themselves. And this causes after indeed after the war. Uh, the pathfinders themselves split apart into all kinds of splinter movements and such. You know, in, in a into a form that um, isn't brought back together again until after the post after the Second World War.
0: Thank you, Jeff, for explaining that. I I, I did find that chapter particularly interesting, and the arguments particularly interesting too. I wonder if you know we've uh, we've. I guess that one question I'd like to ask you, which I I enjoy asking authors generally, uh, is maybe. Uh, as a as a we'll we'll talk about some 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 other things in just a moment. We'll talk about what you're working on next, and we'll we'll all be very interested to know what we can expect from you uh, in a next project. But maybe before we get to that, uh, one last question about your current about the book that's just come out that I that I like would like to ask you because I like to ask people this question generally is um, how do you feel? What do you feel was the most important conclusion that you reached in your book, or what what is the mo- what for you was the most striking thing that you learned in the course of your research and then in writing the, in writing the book.
1: So the, the thing that I, I try to emphasize most about the book's argument, what I think is the most important case that it makes is that essentially Germans, the way Germans understood themselves was centrally bound up with the idea that they live within a world defined into uh, those who were civilized and those who are uncivilized. And this was central to how Germans imagined they would fit in the modern world, not just within Europe, um, but around the globe. And that this was not something that just was about attention to their own colonies. Uh, If you asked a German what they thought about Togo, they probably couldn't tell you very much. But rather, this was a broader worldview that encompassed the entire globe, not just Germany's colonies, but indeed the British Empire, which they were constantly talking about. Um, Areas that aren't part of any formal empire, like South American jungles, uh, the American Wild West, which fits into empire in an entirely different way than a lot of European uh, colonial projects, than uh, uh, those projects are defined. Um, and that, that this that this particular worldview um, was pervasive and important to Germans. Not the only thing they thought about, obviously, but it was centrally tied up with how Germans thought about modernity by 1914. And that this idea came not so much from the top down. This wasn't something that was cynically imposed by Bismarck and later politicians trying to manipulate the public, but it happened just as much from the bottom up through the means of mass commercial culture, which operated on an entirely different set of principles than did political propaganda and indeed often drove the political propaganda. Those who the colonial propagandists were often chasing behind developments in mass culture more than they were actually directing those developments in mass culture. And so I think that that's that's the point that I would highlight as the most important. It helps us understand how Germans thought about themselves in a global context in terms of empire, not just their own, but everyone's. And it also helps us understand a a new set of media for talking about that, that that, that where Germans were having this conversation with with themselves uh, in the sphere of mass commercial culture, which rises at the very same time as this imperial expansion happens. And if we think about that broader argument, then it really gives us something to say about how Germans were part of a broader project, as we mentioned at the very opening of, of, of this interview, uh, in a broader project that was, going, that was taking place in Britain and France and the U.S. And, and many other places around the globe. Because the mass commercial culture that Germans were engaging with was in many ways connected to, in fact, the same commercial culture that was going on in Britain or France or the U.S., German toys, the same toys that German kids played with, were, being, were dominating the toy market in Britain and the United States. German, toy, German and American and British kids were playing with a lot of the same toys. French films, when films were introduced, film, you know, French film companies were enormously effective at exporting those films around. So films of exotic, exotic imagery, for example, were bouncing all over the place. German, Germany didn't have its own Rudyard Kipling, but Germans read Rudyard Kipling, as did everyone else in translation. And so there's there an international... Uh, commercial market in literature as well in exotic exoticized and colonial literature, and so this is something that I only hint at really in the book. Um, and I think there's a lot of a lot more room for this sort of for attention to this sort of connection, this sort of transnational colonial culture, uh, which d- hasn't really been done in any meaningful way yet. Um, Talking about how it is that that Germans and British and French and Americans and Austrians and Scandinavians and People who don't have colonial empires or meaningful ones of their own were all part of a broader network um, in commercial terms as well as other terms, where they're all constructing a broader frame for understanding how the world should operate, at least up to 1914 anyway. Uh, for Germany, things changed dramatically after that point. But up to 1914, I think we can talk about a uh, a, a broader transnational commercial culture that helped shape how Europeans and, and North Americans, among others, Saw themselves in the colonial world.
0: Jeff, we've uh, yes. uh, you've been very generous with your time, and I've so appreciated hearing your thoughts on your book and hearing you explain some of its uh, main arguments and some of your discussion of your sources and so on. Um, we we know that we can't talk to you forever today, I and mean, you've got lots of other things to do, and uh, and we don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, but we do want to ask you one last question, which will interest uh, all of our listeners, I, I, I expect. And that's maybe you could tell us a bit about what you are working on now. Are you, Is this um, transnational aspect of of imperial media, let's say, is that, is that a next project or are you working on something quite different?
1: It's actually related directly to this. Um, it came out of the toys chapter, my next project, my current project, actually, um, when I discovered among the various sort of colonial toys the Germans were playing with, there were a lot of American minstrel characters, which I didn't at all expect and didn't quite know how to explain. And it turns out, uh, there's not much literature on this, which is why I'm doing this as my next project. Uh, it turns out that from the 1870s, there were a goodly number of American blackface performers, as well as a lot of African-American performers who were coming over from the U.S., um, many of whom would stop in Britain, uh, and then touring the continent, uh, including Germany, and a lot of them would even settle down in Germany. Um, and so Germany is linked into one of these broader commercial networks, in this case, a commercial network in uh, mass uh, popular entertainment, variety shows, vaudeville. Uh, an international circuit of entertainers are traveling across the Atlantic and all around the continent, uh, from you know Birmingham to Bologna and Moscow to Madrid. They're, they're just traveling all over the continent. And these entertainers, these black entertainers, Mostly African Americans, although there's some Afro-Caribbeans. There's some Africans pretending to be African Americans. Um, so it's understood as something that's, that's an African American entertainment anyway in Germany. They're inspiring a host of popular entertainment trends. So before jazz, this is when this is the era of ragtime. Uh, this is the era of the cakewalk, uh, the two-step, the turkey trot, the Boston dance steps like these. And these are all taking Germany, as in much much the rest of Europe, uh, by storm, and provoking some conversations within German society about what it means to be taking on and, and dancing, literally embodying, if you're dancing, um, a the dance forms of black people in a white Germany. Um, what it means to be going to watch African-American singers sing about the plantation South um, and to sing about race relations um, and to just sing funny songs, even to sing German songs on German stages. This provokes conversation among Germans about what commercial culture, or what it means to be German in an age when anybody, it seems, can reproduce those German songs. Um, What I'm trying to understand is how questions of race operate in this context. In fact, my sort of working thesis is that the commentary on this sort of entertainment is one of the ways by which modern notions of race and in particular American notions of race sort of breaking down between white and black in particular. That um, this is one important means by which Germans came to understand how race operated on an everyday level that we can talk about the racial theorists. We can talk about the scientists. We can talk about how that filtered down in popular science or even made its way into children's textbooks as I write about in this book, but going to see black entertainers on the variety stage and then two days later reading about it in the newspaper but I think there is a way we haven't really understood yet to understand how Germans before the jazz age, before the age of Josephine Baker, were already thinking about what blackness and whiteness meant and what Germanness versus Americanness meant. Uh, in, and especially with regard to commercial culture, which made it all a bit certainly more sensational, but also a bit more problematic for those who worried about um, material sort of materialism in the modern age.
0: Sounds just fascinating, Jeff. Thank you very much for explaining that. Um, We'll all be looking forward to to seeing what you'll do next um, with that topic and and with other things, I expect. Um, The book we've been talking about today is Raising Germans in the Age of Higher Youth and Colonial Culture, 1871 to 1914 by Jeff Bowersox. It was just published this year by Oxford University Press. I hope you'll run right out and buy it. Uh, or at least read it. Um, it is fascinating. There are many. Uh, I, I found just um, among the many things that Jeff's talked about today, one of the things I found fascinating was just literally to look at his sources, which you can't always say uh, about every history book you read, right? So uh, I, I I loved looking at, at some of the reproductions of the sources in the book, and, and uh, it's a fascinating book, of, uh, and and makes some really important, I think, and interesting arguments. But Jeff, thanks so much again, and we're going to sign off and say goodbye.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Monica. I really appreciate it.